Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the Sectarianism Proxies and Desectarianization Podcast. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Jonathan Fulton, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Zayed University in Abu Dhabi, the UAE. That's quite a mouthful, Jonathan. But thank you so much for joining us. It's really exciting to have you on the show today. Thanks, Simon. It's great to be on. I've been listening to your podcast for a few months now and uh, always been really impressed with it. Oh, that's really kind of you to say. And uh, I thought that as your your latest single dropped last week, now would be an opportune time to to get you on the podcast to talk about, about your work, your geopolitics, your Middle East, your China, your complexities. I thought it'd be a perfect time. So, Excellent. Thanks. We'll see. Get me up in the charts a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. And um, before we go to my my normal opening gambit, if you will, can you just tell us what is this single, your so called single? What is it that that you've just released this past week? And I know you were in the states talking about it, and um, and you've been tweeting about it. So can you just tell us a little bit about what it is? Sure. So I was asked to write an issue brief for the Atlanta Council at uh, the Rafi Hariri Center for the Middle East. Um, and uh, I guess in February we started talking about this, that, that folks in, in Washington at the Atlanta Council were starting to recognize that China uh, was playing an increasingly big role in Middle Eastern politics and that there was kind of a gap between, you know, we've got these different siloed communities where people seem to know a lot about the Middle East yeah. and they know a lot about China, but those two, two communities don't really overlap or intersect too much. Yeah. Um, so Will Wexler at the Atlantic Council asked me to write this piece for them, and uh, it, it was released, I guess, last Thursday. It's called uh, China's Changing Role in the Middle East, and we had a pretty fun event to, uh, to roll it out last week. We had uh, so, uh, somebody from the Trump administration, uh, Victoria Coates, and a friend of mine, a professor from China, Dagong Sun, who's a, a really good scholar on, on Middle Eastern issues. Wonderful. It sounds fantastic. It's on my to-read list, along with a couple of other things, and I'm really looking forward to, to getting a bit of time sitting down and and looking at how you've approached this thing that is incredibly complex. As you say, you need to have, have a foot in two sort of, not so much disciplinary camps, but two geographical camps, which raises a whole host of of, of problems, intellectual and practical, methodological, perhaps. So, given this complexity, given these challenges, Jonathan, what got you interested in in this particular topic of looking at China in the in the Middle East? Huh, just a series of um, kind of happy accidents. Okay. When I graduated from university in way back in '97, I had a degree in political science, a pretty big student loan and uh, a real appetite to travel. I'd never really traveled outside of Atlanta, Canada before. So my then-girlfriend and now wife and I uh, went to Taiwan to teach English, okay. knowing absolutely nobody there, knowing nothing about the language, the culture, the, the nothing. Um, just this kind of <laughs> sense that we could go to the other side of the world and find a job. And yeah. luckily it did, or we did rather, and it all kind of worked out. And while I was there, I got really interested in, in, in the language, um, studying Chinese and the history and the culture, and as a, somebody who's always been interested in politics, uh, it was fascinating for me. So I'd spent most of my 20s in East Asia, and we moved to the, the Emirates in 2006. You know, in the early part of the century, it became pretty obvious that uh, this part of the world was, was really, really important in, in terms of international politics. I mean, it, it always has been, but... Um, 
you know, in, in the early 2000s, there was just so much happening. And we, we just thought we should come to this part of the world for a little while and then try to learn a little bit more about it. Um, but my expectation was just to come for two or three years before going back to East Asia. And that, now it's been 13 years. <laughs> yeah, that's a good two or three years. What, what brought you to the UAE? Um, well, again, this is curiosity. Uh, we, we just we, we wanted to try living in a different place. Um, I was starting uh, a, another master's degree in international relations because I realized that at that point I wanted to go on an academic track. And I thought this would be a good place to, to be here while I worked on this MA um, and, and travel and, and just try to understand uh, a little bit about this this region. Right. Um, and it's funny because at the time, my, my focus, my MA was on... Um, it was an IR degree, and the focus was how China's, uh, for my thesis, the focus was how China's energy requirements drive its foreign policy. And I thought that the story was going to be the Shanghai Cooperation Organization in Central Asia. I was excited about, you know, focusing on the Central Asia-China nexus. And it took a while before I realized I actually lived uh, where the story was. I mean, there wasn't a lot about China in the Gulf that was being done at the time, and and I just, I didn't really think that, that the relationship was, was that substantial. But by the time I finished my thesis, I realized that this was a, a pretty interesting angle of, the, of China's international relations that hadn't been looked at too much. And I thought, let's stick around a bit longer and, and do the PhD from here and, and explore it a little more deeply. Yeah, I can imagine it's, it's quite a place to be doing that type of work, I guess, right at the... I would say the coal face, but I think that's that's kind of missing an obvious pun there, perhaps. But uh, I can't quite think of it for now. But can you can you tell us what the what the reflection was at that time then on on China's role in the Middle East? This is um, some thirteen years ago, I guess. Things have changed yeah. dramatically. What what was it What was it like at that time? Well, it was there wasn't a lot. I mean, so so Dubai has a very quiet but vibrant and big Chinese community. Um, nobody knows exactly, but the, the estimates are between two and 300,000 people. And some of them have been there for quite a while. One of my friends in Sharjah is doing some pretty interesting sociological work on it. And she's she's located a couple of Chinatowns in Dubai that are two or three generations deep. Her name is Yu Ting Wang. She's doing some really cool work. But Abu Dhabi, I mean, really, it was, it, there, even now, there are very few decent Chinese restaurants the Chinese community is not very big. Um, and when I told people that I was interested in researching this, I talked to folks from Badala and talked to people in the, the official community, government community, and the sense was, there's, what are you going to research? There's nothing, there's nothing there. Right. Um, and, I mean, really, what a, what a change we've seen in the past five years or so. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating that that was the response that you got. But in spite of that response, you then decided that you were going to embark on a PhD. Yes. And what was the thesis then? What were you looking at? Um, okay, so I, for the PhD, I was looking specifically at the GCC states in the relations with, with China. And I was trying to get a sense of what's driving this. The only other kind of big study was done by an Emirati named uh, Mohammed bin Hawain, who's a political scientist here at uh, University uh, uh, UAEU, United Arab Emirates University in LA. And I believe he's at Durham. Um, and he published a book in 2002. Um, so it needs to be updated. Obviously, there, there was a lot of stuff that happened since then. But a lot of the, a lot of the big landmark studies on China's Middle East and China's Gulf relations 
um, from an IR perspective, we're really kind of driven by this this uh, Cold War logic of, of um, kind of a structural logic. Yeah, you know that that pressure is at that this international level. Were what we're, what was driving it? Sure. And um, uh, from my perspective, being here, it just seemed like there was just so much stuff, unit level stuff that hadn't been really looked at very deeply. Um, you know, all these weird domestic pressures that 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 shape politics in the Gulf, and also shape politics in in China can't really. You know, it just felt like there needs to be more more um, variables looked at to, to really get a, a richer idea of what was driving the relationship. So that was it. I, I used a neoclassical uh, realist framework to, to look at some of the, the structural issues, but also some of the, the domestic variables that make these regions want to uh, develop stronger ties to each other. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those those unit variables that you talk about? I can certainly see the, the appeal of a of a neoclassical realist approach to, to this type of question. But but what are some of those peculiarities on the Gulf side, but also on the Chinese side? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting on both sides. I mean, one of the things that, that took me to neoclassical realism is, you know, a lot of the stuff on IR in the Gulf would take a lot of the, the best stuff from realism and the best stuff from constructivism and then try to come up with some kind of theoretically pluralist Approach, you know, because again, like when you look at Gulf politics, realism seems to explain an awful lot. Yeah. Um, but then you've got these 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 other issues that happen at the state level. Um, that constructivism, these ideological challenges, especially, um, or transnational identity issues, that also have such a big factor in uh, in IR. So neoclassical realism to me kind of said a little bit more about you know it, it let that stuff into the into the picture in a nicer way um from the gulf side what was it that was driving well there's there are a lot of domestic pressures um that that made it a, a more um obvious relationship to develop uh things like regime stability you know like the relationship with the u.s um which is obviously the most important external actor in a lot of ways, uh, there's always been a lot of pressure for political issues to, to become a part of the relationship, you know, and, and especially around that time of 2011, right around the, the post-Arab uprising time when when it looked like uh, pressure from, from, from the U.S. to maybe um, ask for some, some domestic political reform uh, obviously, that that that's not something that's really appreciated too much in this part of the world. They they prefer states, uh, major par- power partners, to not focus so much on on the domestic political side and, and deal more on the, uh, the the bigger issues of of uh, you know regional uh, power issues in, in Iran and, yeah. and and stuff like that. Sure. And Sorry, then- going a bit here. No, no, no. It's it's really interesting. And what about on the Chinese side, then? As, as someone who who knows very little about about China and Chinese foreign policy, how does that differ at the unit level from the Chinese side? Right. So the Chinese side, it's, it's pretty interesting to me because um, so much of what they're doing, I think, in the Middle East has to be understood as a response to these domestic pressures. Right. And a lot line up a lot with what's happening um, in the Gulf. You know, like this. What what China has been doing in this reform era since 1978 is is addressing a lot of these, you know, introducing economic reforms, uh, but avoiding political reforms because that's obviously going to to um, put some pressure on the Communist Party. Sure. So they've been 
making some really um, big headway into economic reform. But there's this, this pressure that, you know, that's the kind of the central pillar of regime legitimacy is, is maintaining that kind of economic um, performance. And as soon as they can't do that, it becomes uh, very, very stressful on the political system. There was a point uh, a few years ago where um, there was a report by uh, Min Xin Pei, who's a really good political scientist in, in California of Chinese uh, background. And I remember him saying something to the effect that when you look at 10% economic growth in China every year, uh, which obviously is phenomenal, but you break that down and for every every 1% of growth is something like a million jobs. And where they had something like 10 million new uh, college graduates coming out of the system every year, as soon as they stopped hitting 10%, there's going to be a bunch of young people that didn't have jobs to go to after they graduated, which is going to cause all these um, political problems. So. It, it really, there's a, a tremendous pressure on leaders to continue this economic uh, growth. And uh, that meant opening new markets and making sure that energy uh, was able to keep flowing into the country on a regular basis so they can continue developing their uh, inland provinces. Because a lot of what we'd seen was this tremendous growth in the coastal region, but, but inland they're, they're, they're still needing uh, pretty intense development needs. So. What they've been doing in the Middle East has been kind of addressing some of those pressures of, of you know, opening up new markets and making sure that the energy keeps flowing into the country. Right. So before we, we delve deeper into this, Jonathan, and I've got, I've got so many questions. I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated. This thesis later became a book. Is that correct? Yes. This is your book with Routledge? Yes. China's Relations with the Gulf Monarchies. Wonderful. And that came out last year, didn't it? Yeah, amazing. Yeah, that was a particular lucky piece of timing because it came out the same week that the Chinese president Xi Jinping came to the UAE and signed a comprehensive strategic partnership, which is their highest level of diplomatic relations with the Emirates. Fantastic. So at that exact moment, um, when people were were uh, looking for answers as to what this relationship was about, my book kind of hit the hit the stands, as it were. Yeah, and gives the answers, offers a rich overview of everything that's happening. And that that leads me to another question, Jonathan, and, and it's it's more of a methodological one in the sense that you're dealing with such complexity. On the one hand, you've got the, the GCC states with their own obviously tiny yet incredibly powerful and complex politics and the minutiae of all of the interactions that are going on there. And then that requires, well, people have dedicated academic careers to doing that. And then there are obviously people who are doing the same thing in China. How do you straddle these two different um, different geographical areas and the, the, the body of knowledge that's being produced on, on each of these two vastly distinct regions? And of course, the language issues, how do you do it? I, it's amazing, right? I mean, it really is. That I, what I'm working on, it's just amazing that when I started, when I moved to the Gulf in 2006, it, it still felt manageable to stay on top of the literature. And really, I mean, it's it's just there's been so much coming out in the past few, so much great work that it's just it's it's just impossible to keep track of it all. And on China, you've got the same issues. So I guess where I was lucky is that I had spent so much time, uh, you know. My, my 20s and my early 30s were just really kind of consumed with 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 um, reading as much Chinese politics as I could. So I came into it with a pretty deep background. Um, 
when I moved here, I mean, I'm not a Middle East studies guy by, by training or background. I just, I'm, I'm a kind of a, an East Asia studies guy who lives in the Middle East. Right. And when I started, um, when I realized that I wanted to do this, this study, I had to really kind of get a crash course, um, on Middle East politics or Gulf politics rather. And it took, a, I mean, just a, a tremendous amount of time in reading. I'm lucky in that in my, my college, I had quite a few really good Gulf scholars who were able to, to guide me and, and point me in the right direction. But um, yeah, it, there's just so much so much to stay on top of. And I guess that's what, why my um, dissertation, I, I kind of narrowed it down. At first, I wanted it to be a this you know, magnum opus looking at the entire Gulf and I, bringing Iran into it. What a, a foolhardy thing that would have been. <laughs> so I, I narrowed it down to three states that I that I thought were the most interesting in terms of what I was trying to get at. And I did case studies on Oman, the Emirates, and Saudi. And you know, even that was was a, a lot of um, a lot of literature and a lot of um, stuff to stay on top of. Yeah, for sure. Can you tell us how those those three different case studies differ then in terms of their their relations with China, in terms of what well, their their needs, their their economic dimensions, their geopolitical aspirations? How do, how does it differ across the Gulf? Yeah, I mean it's it's really interesting because what you see um, again is when I started, I just had this sense of you know GCC provides energy and China buys stuff and they sell cheap stuff. Um, and the deeper you get in, you realize that they've got a, a very um, kind of nuanced approach to each state in the region. Um, Oman, um, they've got a really interesting history. I mean, the, the Chinese back in the heady days of the, the Cultural Revolution, when they had this revolutionary foreign policy, China was the, uh, supplying material support to the Dafari Rebellion in Oman, which is trying to overthrow Sultan Qaboos' dad. Mm. Uh, and they were supplying a lot of, uh, you know, Marxist literature and training and, and guerrilla warfare. And, and their ultimate aim was to topple the entire Gulf, you know, and, and, and replace monarchy with this, this Chinese uh, system. So, of course, the relationship between China and the GCC countries was, was terrible at this period. But Oman um, very quickly kind of turned it around and realized that um, the Chinese, the biggest factor that was driving China's... Um, more activist foreign policy was its fear of, of the Soviet Union, which was also a big motivating factor of, of the Omani government, and they kind of found a space to work. So they took a very pragmatic approach to building the relationship. Um, geographically, Oman, it provides a lot to China that the other states can, you know, with the, the, the Hormuz dilemma. Um, China's been, been using things like Dukum in Oman and Salala and all these port cities. Uh, Oman was the first country to start exporting oil to, to China back in 93. Um, so they've got a, a pretty interesting relationship there. Um, with with Saudi, it was a very difficult relationship. It was the last GCC state to recognize China diplomatically. Uh, they waited until 1990, and they really leaned heavily on the other um, GCC states not to, to, to grant official relations to China because they didn't really forgive them for the uh, attempt to overthrow monarchy back in the late 60s, early 70s. They were really reflexively anti-communist. Of course, communism is is an inherently difficult uh, ideology in the Gulf. uh, So so for the Saudis, it was really, there was really no trust, no no love for the Chinese. Um, But in the 80s, they started building inroads, and it was mostly based on weapon sales, interestingly, and Islam. 
and there's a really good short autograph by an Israeli scholar, Isaac Shinshor, called, I think, uh, Red Star over, or East Wind over Arabia. And it just shows how China used this kind of uh, approach to selling weapons to Saudi and using these, using its is, uh, Muslim population. Uh, who are performing Hajj as these kind of unofficial um, government representatives to try to build unofficial relations with with Chinese government officials, um, and it was a really long process, but they eventually developed a pretty strong relationship, and, and then in, in 1990 they were able to officially recognize each other and, and build a proper relationship. Um, and with the Emirates, uh, well, the UAE is, I think, quite pragmatic, and they realized that China was going to be a, 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 an important long-term energy supplier, and. What I think China sees in the Emirates is uh, a really interesting logistical uh, transportation hub, great connections to the rest of the Middle East, East Africa, South Asia. So I think the UAE has kind of been the, the one-stop shop for China in the Middle East if they've really uh, developed that relationship, I think more more so than with any other Gulf country. Right. That's that's really interesting. And I guess... I guess the port would would or the ports in the Emirates would would explain a lot of that, but but it's interesting to hear that it goes beyond. Um, it would be remiss of us not to talk about the Belt and Road Initiative. I think uh, on a on a podcast talking about China's relationship with the Middle East, although not perhaps the most obvious thing. I think it's something that we do need to touch on. So, so Jonathan, can you tell us a little bit about how that that works and how it affects the Middle East, please? Yeah. So, so the Belt and Road is it was announced in two thousand and thirteen. It's got an overland route, which is the road, or sorry, the the belt, um, and it's got a maritime route, which is the road. And um, what this is is a series of hot, uh, hard and soft infrastructure projects that are meant to connect China. Um, to different markets across Eurasia and the Indian Ocean region. So um, this is really, the initiative in the Belt and Road Initiative is a really important now because what this is saying is that this isn't a strategy, this isn't meant to achieve political ambitions. According to the official narrative of it, it's meant to be an initiative that doesn't target any third country, anybody's open to join, it's all about win-win cooperation, it's mostly about... um, building infrastructure and, and trade and investment and things like this. So for the Middle East, uh, this comes at a really good time because, again, uh, a, lot of, uh, middle, uh, a lot of states in the Middle East are really uh, desperate for, for new sources of FDI. Um, they like it to come without the kind of uh, political strings attached that typically come from Western lenders. Uh, they like that it comes from China, which has uh, the sun interference Mm. Policy and it's, it's five principles of peaceful coexistence. You know they 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 vow to not interfere in other states' domestic politics. Um, so it provides a really nice counterbalance to a lot of uh, Western uh, development in the region. So there's been a lot of enthusiasm for it and in the Gulf, especially where there's been these uh, vision development projects. You know, Vision 2030 or New Kuwait 2035. You know, this is essentially uh, the same thing, right? Like to, to, to revitalize or to redirect the economies to a, a, a more diversified economy, requiring a lot of construction and infrastructure. Uh, so there's a lot of enthusiasm in the Middle East in general, and, and especially in the Arabian Peninsula, to engage with China on this. And how does it directly affect? the um the gulf states in particular if you look at the 
the the map it doesn't necessarily seem to to go through the gulf right so the there was a map that was produced, or it, I, I don't know if there was ever an official map that the government released. There was one by the, the Chinese state media, Xinhua, that um, got a lot of play in 2015. And it showed this, this model of economic corridors. There were six corridors. Um, one went through uh, Southeast Asia and, and, and the China-Pakistan economic corridor. And, and um, so there were these six corridors, and none of them touched on the Arabian Peninsula one that kind of went through Central Asia and forked into Iran and Turkey, um, and that was really as close as it got. But what we've seen since then is that this economic corridor uh, model has, has really, um, they've, they've kind of uh, moved away from that, and it's become a lot more uh, all-encompassing. Right. You know, to the point where you know, the Belt and Road in the Arctic and Belt and Road in space, a digital Silk Road, uh, they're all over the place. You know, Belt and Road on the moon kind of thing. Huh. Um, now, what this means for the for the Gulf states in particular um, is that they're just so centrally located um, sure, from yeah. the Indian region, and we've seen a, a series of, of policy documents. There was a, a Arab policy paper that China released in 2016 that introduced this this new cooperation framework that was finding ways to cooperate with Arab states on things like uh, energy and uh, finance and, and investment. And then um, last year, there was a China-Arab States Cooperation Forum in Beijing. This was really interesting uh, because uh, the, big, the big banner headline from that was China was going to um, provide $23 billion of investment, loans, and aid to, to Middle Eastern states. And that one got all the press. But what kind of went under the radar was this really awkwardly titled new initiative called the Industrial Park Port Interconnectivity Two-wing, two-wheels uh, cooperation approach, which that's the title of it. Off, yes, right. It rolls off the. It really title. does. Yeah, um, they're really great with titles. <laughs> but but what this was was they they had they singled out four industrial parks and four ports in the Middle East, um, and when you look at them, the the Khalifa Park and Khalifa Port in Abu Dhabi, Kizad was um, this dual-purpose uh, port and industrial park. There's Dukum, uh, the Sezad complex in, in Oman. There's the Jazan industrial park in Saudi, just north of the uh, Yemeni border. There's the Djibouti port. Um, and then there's Port Said in Egypt. Mm. And what they're doing is they're putting a tremendous amount of investment and construction into each of these facilities. Um, mostly for commercial purposes. The Djibouti one is the outlier, that's a military facility. Um, but in, in doing this, what you can see is this Chinese presence that almost forms a horseshoe from the uh, Persian Gulf to the Arabian Sea, up the Red Sea, and into the Mediterranean. So this adds a real strategic component to it. I mean, it's, it's meant to be an economic um, issue, and of course, these, these, each of these recipient states or partner states or cities and ports are happy to cooperate. But you can see how this develops a much bigger uh, strategic presence for China in all of these really important um, locations. And um, this came out, again, like uh, I, I believe two weeks ago, a, a Chinese firm announced that it was going to pour possibly another $10 billion into this, this um, Kizad in, in, in Abu Dhabi. So it, they're really getting into these uh, regions in a very big way. Um, and this is all kind of linked to the Belt and Road. Right. And what sort of response has it had in the in the Gulf states? 
Right. So uh, obviously a very positive one. Um, I think what you see in the Gulf states is that, for one thing, um, China's a blank slate. It doesn't have a lot of the, the historical baggage in the region that, uh, that you'll find a lot of other states, a lot of extra-regional powers have. Um, China's just, just kind of the, the, the new presence. And because of this, uh, people can really project anything on it. So right now it's, it's seen as a very, very um, positive regional actor. Um, especially with the way it lines up with the vision programs, you'll see sure. every Gulf leader has, has made uh, very positive statements about how the Belt and Road uh, lines up perfectly with their, with their vision programs and, and we should pursue de denser cooperation. Um, but I think on a more practical level, um, it just, it's, it, again, it's, the Belt and Road is presented as kind of a positive model of Eurasian integration. And in this, the Middle East is, is portrayed as an important um, region that links a, a lot of other important regions. And why that's interesting, I think, is you don't hear a lot of positive narratives, especially from the West, about the Middle East these days. Yeah. What you see typically is this kind of Middle East fatigue where everybody's saying, oh, you know, how, how do we disengage, whether that's through the pivot to Asia from the U.S. or, or whether it's, you know, uh, this Middle East strategic alliance trying to lessen the footprint or, or calls to pull troops out of Syria or reduce the troop presence in Afghanistan. You know, most Western states, and the U.S. in particular, seems to want a, a less engaged regional role. And now China's, you know, coming in and saying, hey, we've got this positive vision that we want to promote and we want you to be kind of equal partners in this and this is a way that we can uh, make our relationship stronger so there seems to be some enthusiasm there that's um it, it's interesting to hear you say that jonathan because the the last question that i wanted to ask you was just that there's there's been a lot in the news recently about china's treatment of its muslim populations yes. and i wonder how that how that fits in all of this? Does it feature? Is it is it a key concern for people, or is it something that that is largely ignored? I think it has to be a, a concern um, from China's perspective because so much of this Belt and Road is passing through um, Muslim, you know, predominantly Muslim states across Central Asia, and, and and you know, just you look at the map, and and they're going to be very heavily involved with a lot of uh, Muslim societies. And they're calling for things like an Islamic investment as, as a way to deepen ties and things like this. So, so on the one hand, there's this realization that um, Islam is a very important um, factor in, in the success of the Belt and Road. And on the other hand, you have the situation in Xinjiang, yeah. which is very damaging to China's reputation for, for, for how um, it approaches Islam. Um, I think there's a few things to, to look at here. Um, and, and for one, I mean, China's got a very diverse Muslim population. And, and I'm not saying this to whitewash any of it. I mean, what's happening in Xinjiang is very troubling. Um, other communities, like the Hui, for example, there's a, an ethnic Han group called the Hui, which um, have uh, a, a much higher degree of freedom to practice their faith. Uh, they're not dealing with anywhere near the same kind of restrictions that the Uyghurs are in, in Xinjiang. So, you know, there's a lot of different approaches to Islam, I think, in, in, in China. Um, it's, it's not all about the awful things that are happening in Xinjiang. Um, that said, when I talk to my students here in the Gulf, 
very few people really know. Well, first of all, there's not really an awareness that China has a, a very substantial Muslim population. Right. You know, some 23 million Muslims in China. Um, my students are always shocked when they hear that because their image of China is, you know, uh, ethnically Han, um, uh, uh, kind of a homogenous society. There's not really a, a big sense of China as a pluralist place. When I talk about Xinjiang, they're always very surprised. But the thing is that it's not really getting a lot of play in the press here. Um, right. Yeah. And I'm sure you saw it, but when Mohammed bin Salman went to Beijing in, in February this year, uh, somebody asked him about, you know, the elephant in the room. Yeah. And, and he addressed it head on. He said, look, um, for China, this is a, an issue with uh, political Islam, uh, that they consider this an ideological threat to the state. Uh, there have been some instances in Xinjiang of, uh, of radicalism. There's been threat, uh, some issues where uh, there have been terrorist attacks. Um, there's certainly uh, a very strong sense within Xinjiang that uh, as, a, as a kind of an autonomous region, or, or what they would aspire to be an autonomous region, there, there's a separatist movement, there's a desire to have a little more political autonomy, um, and, and it's seen as, as a problem of, of trying to break up the state. So when Chinese leaders frame it this way as a response to political Islam, this is something that Gulf leaders, I think, um, have a degree of sympathy, right? Because a lot yeah, of them also sure. consider political Islam to be a, a threat to stability. So uh, they seem to be willing to give China a, a pass on this. Um, I don't know for how much longer. If, there's, if there were any real concentrated effort from other uh, Muslim states to, to speak out about it. We might see uh, some, some kind of pressure that would lead to change, but there hasn't really been anything that you see very much. Uh, the foreign minister of Turkey made a statement a few months ago, yeah. um, but then nothing's really, nothing's really uh, moved on it. So uh, it seems a lot of states are willing to give China a pass, not just here in the Gulf. Yeah, sure. And it's, it's easy to see why, I think, given the, the things that we've been talking about and and broader global um, supply chains and economic systems and and others. So, Jonathan, thank you so much for everything. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I've learned so very much about about China's involvement in the Middle East. And I urge everyone who's not already done so to to read your book. I'll tweet about it and I'll share links to your your recent piece for the Atlantic Council. But thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Simon. It's been great. Uh, this 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 uh, podcast is something that a lot of folks here in the Gulf really get a lot from, and, and uh, I'm a regular listener, really enjoy it. So thanks for the opportunity. It's a pleasure, and it's good to know that people are enjoying it. So thank you so much for the kind words. Until next okay. time, thank you very much.